This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to a podcast by The Straits Times. I'm Shefali Rekhi, Asian News Network editor and your host for today's show. I'm here at Davos 2023 with my special guest, Dr. Gil Prath, CEO of Toyota Research Institute and Chief Scientist of Toyota Motor Corporation. Hello, Mr. Prath. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's very nice to be here. Great. Uh, Dr. Prath, you'd be happy to know that um, in December last year, we had our annual Straits Times Car of the Year contest. Mm. And your model, the Toyota Sienta Hybrid, mm. won the Car of the Year in Singapore, beating eight other models. So I think people are closely following the developments. And I was wondering, should we start off with, why don't you share with us some of the exciting things they can look forward to this year and in the coming two or three years? Because I'm a scientist for the company and I'm not in the uh, product planning or the sales division, uh, I can't say exactly what is coming down the line. But what I can talk about is the general changes that are happening to the company and the kinds of cars that you're going to see. Uh, the Sienna Hybrid is a wonderful example of kind of the first stage of electrification. So inside the Sienna Hybrid is a relatively small battery. And what that battery does is it makes the fuel economy in the city and the fuel economy on the highway be the same. So dramatically boosting the fuel economy in the city. The way it works, every time that you press on the brake, before it engages the friction brakes to slow the car down, it actually runs a motor generator system in the car in reverse, and uh, it actually takes some of the energy that's in the car as it's slowing to a stop and puts it into charging the battery. Then when it's time to accelerate, for instance, when the light changes, that energy goes back into making the car get up to speed. So by recovering all of that energy, by regenerating, it's what we call it, the energy of stopping into going again, that fuel economy gets much, much better in the city, roughly equal to what the highway mileage is. So that's the first generation, and we call that the hybrid drivetrain. And we keep improving it and putting it in more models. The next kind of vehicle that you will see, and we're, we have a few models with them now, and we expect that to grow, is called plug-in hybrid. And what that is, very similar to hybrid, there's a little battery on board. In this case, it's a little bit bigger, actually, than the hybrid ones. And it can continue to operate the vehicle without the uh, internal combustion engine on board running, but just off the battery that's inside the vehicle. And so over a typical day of driving that you might do to get to work and come back, uh, the vehicle does not have to use any petrol whatsoever. And what you can do if you have the, uh, the ability to do so is plug it into an electrical outlet each evening, charge it up at night, and then use it again. And again, you're really fueling it almost entirely from the electricity wherever it was parked in the evening. Uh, so that's called Plug-In Hybrid Electric Vehicle, or PHEV. And uh, it's becoming more uh, popular, and uh, it really allows you to have many of the benefits of a full battery electric vehicle uh, while still having the flexibility that you would have in a hybrid vehicle that runs off of gasoline. Great. That makes it a user-friendly and also sustainable energy efficient as well. So those are some good things to look forward to. Given how public transportation systems are evolving, how do you see 
the future of the use of automobiles in major metropolitan cities. Do you think people will move away or will car usage remain the way it is still? It's a very interesting question. Um, I think that cities generally, and it's not just in Asia, it's actually all around the world, are having a lot of problems with traffic congestion. Population keeps going up. People love living in uh, cities. And so um, generally the road network is fixed. You can't add on onto it. And so the only way you can really relieve traffic is to increase the density of people as they travel through uh, streets. So uh, one of the uh, changes that I expect to happen, and this isn't in the short term, but sort of a little longer term, is that we will see more kind of shuttles, uh, sort of a small type type of bus uh, where everybody there is roughly going in the same direction. Uh, the vehicle itself probably won't travel that fast, but its salient characteristic is that the density of people kind of, you know, per square meter of the surface area taken up by that vehicle is much higher than it is for a car. And so as a result, for the same number of people moving through the streets in the city, the amount of traffic congestion is much less. And we are seeing this uh, effect happening in uh, cities throughout the world. And we're actually working on a kind of a shuttle like that for Toyota. It's called the e-Pallet. There are other companies working on their own versions of this too. Do you see autonomous vehicles really becoming very popular in the masses? I mean, given that there's this big concern about what happens if there's an accident. It's, it's a very legitimate concern to worry about accidents with autonomous vehicles. There's a somewhat technical term, but I think everyone will uh, understand it. It's called the operational design domain. So in what domain uh, do we design the system to operate? It's the same three words, but uh, backwards in the phrase. And the vehicle that is running pretty slowly, for instance, like an urban shuttle, the, the kind I described before, if it senses that it's about to have a collision with something, perhaps a pedestrian or a bicyclist uh, or another driver in a car that is acting in a surprising way, if the vehicle is going slowly enough, it can come to a safe stop and without harming any of the people on the inside also. And actually, many drivers are used to vehicles that are like this that come to a sudden stop. Uh, for instance, a trash truck, a school bus. There's, you know, many uh, cases where they even put words on the back of the vehicle. I'm not sure what it's like uh, in, in Asia, but in the U.S., it says this vehicle makes frequent stops and it warns you to stay a certain distance from it because it comes to a uh, stop in an unexpected way. I think replacements for those kinds of vehicles that are fully autonomous are actually within the scope of technological development right now. And uh, the reason that it's possible is that uh, it's always the case that sensors on the front that are sensing how close we are to a collision can put the brakes on and stop the vehicle when it is necessary. So in that sense, uh, I think those vehicles are actually very close to here right now. There's another class of vehicles uh, with a different operational design domain, and this has to do with vehicles that operate on the highway. So for instance, they go much faster, but the roads that they're on are limited access. So no pedestrians, no bicycles, turns out no horses, you know, but only other cars. And in some cases, there's a dedicated lane that says, okay, this lane is only for this class of vehicles. And we think that that may be the next one. So in other words, starting with low-speed uh, urban shuttle, 
next going to this um, you know controlled access high high speed road, and there we see an opportunity for uh, some automation in trucks. And we should be very clear: we don't think this is going to cause a loss of employment for truck drivers. We know that's an extremely important thing, but we think it will increase the quality of life of what it's like for a person to drive a truck. And so they won't have to uh, do the boring part of the road all the time. Uh, rather, for trucks that have a place to rest in the back, they could go ahead and rest while the truck is in motion. And then at uh, other times when it's the hard part of the journey, for instance, on surface streets and pulling into the dock, the truck driver would then use their skill for driving the hard part of the uh, hard part of the journey. And so that's kind of the next stage in autonomy that we see. After that will probably be a beginning of attacking this intermediate speed. So on surface streets at moderate speed, somewhere midway between the city and on the, on the highway, but it will probably not come to personally owned vehicles first. It will come to taxis of one sort or, or the other, some sort of a shared type of vehicle. The reason for that is that that vehicle operates for a long time each day. And it's easier to justify the cost of putting the special hardware inside the vehicle. And then the final one, when, and when this occurs, I'm not sure, will be personally owned vehicles where a system is there. The difficulty with personally owned vehicles, they're only running around 5% of the time. 95% of the time they're parked. And so it's very difficult to justify the capital investment to put extra hardware in the car when in fact it's going to be stopped 95% of the time. Since we are looking at the future of automobiles, uh, would you be able to throw some light on the radical changes we can expect in 10 to 20 years from now? Well, so um, one of the wonderful things that I get to do as a scientist is to say, it's really hard to predict the future. <laughs> yeah. And if we could, then the kind of research that we do would actually not be necessary because we would know where we're going. But uh, what I believe is going to be true is that the amount of carbon dioxide that our cars put out is going to drastically go down over the next 10 to 20 years. Toyota is very, very fixated on that goal. It's actually what we think about more than anything else. Is like, how do we get to net zero? And first of all, let me talk about what that means, and then I can speak about the actual dates. Our view of net zero is over the entire life cycle of the car, from the very beginning of its manufacturing, all of the processes that are used to make that car, through the operation of the car, whatever fuel or power it uses from any source. And then finally, at the end of the life of the car, the recycling carbon dioxide that's used to go ahead and uh, make a new car in whatever energy efficient way there is possible to do. So that's what we really be, mean by net zero. When will that happen? Our goal for that is 2050. It is later than some of the numbers that you hear that other folks say, but when you press them to say, well, what do you really mean by net zero? You'll often find that they say, oh, the emissions that come out of the car during the operation will be zero but they're not factoring in what's the manufacturing carbon dioxide that's put out in the air, what happens at the end, end of life, things like that. And we're talking about the whole thing from be beginning to end and from any possible source. 
I'm aware that you're investing quite heavily in EVs as well, but uh, there has been some criticism that Toyota has been a bit slow on that front. Yes, so uh, we are certainly aware of the criticism and we take it very seriously, uh, but honestly, we don't think that it's fair. And uh, there has been this incredible race of promises where different com companies have made pledges saying, we're going to do this by then. Our tradition is to actually be very conservative in the promises that we make because we, we want them to come true. And we never want it to be the case that um, our customers can't trust us to do what we say. And so uh, we believe that the 2050 goal is the responsible one to have. It's actually going to be quite difficult to meet because the criteria are so thorough of what net zero actually means. And then the question is, is how do we get there? And so, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about is since we're here in uh, Switzerland, there's a great analogy, which is there are mountains all over the place here. And uh, if you look up, you can see the peak of the mountain. It's very very neat, but there's more than one way to go up. And so what we believe is most important is that that top of the mountain, that's getting to zero emissions over the life cycle of the car. And the question is, what are the different ways to get there? Uh, one way is focusing entirely on battery electric vehicles. Uh, some people call them fully battery electric vehicles. It's very confusing because other people simply call them electric vehicles. But actually there is a family of different types. And as we spoke about before, there's a hybrid electric vehicle and a plug-in hybrid uh, electric vehicle. And those also tremendously save on the carbon dioxide that is put out, uh, but they are far more flexible in their ability to work, even if the recharging infrastructure isn't quite there yet. And so uh, for certain cust customers, those other electrified vehicles will be the very best that they can do to contribute to reducing climate change. Uh, and if we don't make them available, we're actually robbing a lot of our customers of the possibility of helping in what is a global societal problem that we all share the results in. So uh, we certainly hear the criticism, but for the reasons that I explained, we absolutely do not think that it's fair. Do you really believe in the future of EVs? There are so many issues associated with it, especially if you look at the geography of big economies in the region. It's a very challenging proposition. I am not too familiar myself with the, uh, the power grid um, data from, from Asia, so you'll for forgive me for not knowing that very well. But uh, what we do know is that it's very diverse in different parts of the world. So if we go to Norway as an example, uh, they have a tremendous amount of renewable power there, very low CO2 power. And they also have a lot of infrastructure that they've built out with a lot of chargers for recharging vehicles themselves. So in Norway, as an example, it's a wonderful fit for full battery electric vehicles. For other parts of the world, it's just not the same. And I think that, um, you know, country by country, perhaps even particular parts of each country are going to be different. We do want to accelerate the, the deployment of a renewable power grid all over the world as fast as we can, but we know it's going to take time. And so the question is, during that time, what are these other paths up the mountain uh, that we can get to net zero? And we think the answer there, those 
particular places are PHEV or HEV, while for places where the uh, renewable power grid is very strong, those are the places where BEV makes the most sense. Is there potential for using other forms of clean energy in automobiles, such as hydrogen? Yes, there there absolutely is. Um, and I think, again, it depends on what part of the world that you're in. Uh, there are a number of hydrogen hubs being set up, and these are often parts of uh, government policy, and they're often connected to other industries that are using hydrogen for steel making or cement making, uh, making of fertilizers, you know, many different uses of, of it. And so uh, the amounts that are used for those industries is very, very high. And so the small amount that would be used in order to, um, to fuel vehicles would be very, very low. One of the things that I didn't mention for all of these different choices of different types of drivetrains, be it battery uh, electric vehicle, plug-in hy- hybrid, um, hybrid electric vehicle, or fuel cell, Each one has advantages and disadvantages, matches better or worse to uh, different people in different geographies, and there's also a huge difference in cost. And so generally, the hybrid vehicles are the lowest cost. And again, as a matter of kind of leaving no one behind and making sure that every person has the opportunity to contribute to reducing climate change, we want to make vehicles where If somebody has no uh, resources in order to buy a very expensive car, but they do want to trade in their uh, far more polluting conventional car, that there's an opportunity to do so at a reasonable, affordable cost. I'm going to turn back to the consumer, and uh, we're again uh, going to deep dive into the future. And I want to ask you, what are some of the amazing and exciting things we can look forward to what is your view on flying taxis? Mm-hmm. Uh, will people be able to use their remotes to park a car? Or how do you think it'll all appear? Oh, this is, this is great. Uh, so let me talk about flying cars first. And um, we, we have a wonderful um, subsidiary of our uh, uh, research institute, which has actually grown into being even more than a subsidiary. And it's called Toyota Ventures. And what it is, is a uh, part of our company that invests in startups. And one of the startups that was chosen is called Joby, and it's one that builds um, sort of flying air taxis with vertical takeoff and landing. And it's, it's just such an amazing sight to see. And I've been to the site a few few times to uh, see it. And they're on a pretty good track to uh, have a viable uh, commercial product pretty soon. And I think that, you know, it will, I can't say how many years it will exactly be, but uh, I think that your readers would, would love to know that we are actively working on it uh, sort of with the throttle open. You know, we are really we're, we're working very hard, both Toyota and Joby working together to try to make that a reality. Now, will it be available everywhere in the world at the same time? Uh, probably not. Uh, there's actually a neat kind of alignment uh, in places where uh, there's a lot of congestion on the ground. It's a very uh, neat. Uh, kind of technology to have as an alternative. It turns out that certain places in in Asia that are uh, prone to disasters have already existing helicopter pads on the tops of uh, a lot of the high-rise buildings in cities. And those are ideal because you've already got the infrastructure for places for these things to uh, land and to take take off from. So we're we're really excited about that possibility. And I think a, a lot of your readers, when they think about the 
future, of course, flying cars had been in science fiction for a very, very long time. But I think finally, uh, the fiction is going to become reality. Finally, uh, Dr. Pratt, for our readers in Singapore and wider Asia, should they look out for something exciting in the immediate future? In the immediate future. So um, I think what you will see is CO2 emissions for the fleet continuing to go down. So what we have done inside of Toyota, it's a very straightforward thing. We say, okay, we have to be truly net zero by 2050. Here's where we have been. Here's where we are now. And we, we measure this as caref- carefully as we can. And then we draw a line and we say, oh, you know, this is the path that we must be on. And very frequently, how are we doing versus that line? And so it's not a matter of making a promise for the future and things just sort of stay the way they are. And we hope that we'll be able to jump from where we are to where we need to be, but rather this continuous slope and continuous improvement to continue to reduce carbon emissions from our cars. With that goes increasing fuel economy and um, sort of uh, better uh, affordability for the consumer. And if I put all that aside for uh, a minute, we're also working a lot on software. And they actually have a little bit to do with each other because a car that has really good software can help to plan the route uh, and figure out what speeds you you should go in order to minimize the amount of fuel that you use uh, as well. But there's a huge effort going on inside of Toyota right now to actually build a whole new software system and a whole new computing architecture within a car, kind of from scratch. And uh, what we believe it's going to have is a way for it to be continuously updated, just like the software that's on your phone, but also bring many more uh, valuable uh, services to the customer so that um, both the way that the phone works and beyond, there'll be all kinds of things that the car can do. And you had mentioned that parking might be one of those, those things. You know, I, I'm not sure what you're like, but for me, I can park pretty side, pretty good on, well, pretty well on one side of the road, but not very well on the other side of the road. And it turns out that uh, our cars mostly have all the sensors that they need to know exactly where they are. And that particular plan for how to park is a fairly easy computing problem that uh, our cars can, can do. And there's certain um, sort of park assistance functions that some models of our cars have now. I think those kinds of car-specific software is going to blossom, and we're going to see that just being offered on many, many more different models. Thanks, Dr. Pratt, for being on our show and sharing your insights. Oh, of course. It's been wonderful to be here. Uh, I've enjoyed it very much. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant, and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.